Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds. KGRA Radio. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. My name is Gary Cacciolillo, your host, and today we have author Rob Shelsky. Thank you for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. How many books have you written, by the way? I wish people wouldn't ask me that. I really don't know, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, let's just say five to six pages worth on Amazon, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yes. If, if you go to Amazon and search for Rob Shelsky, you will find a lot of books. <laughs> and, and one of those books is about aliens living in a hollow moon. Um, where did you get the idea for that book? Like, I know I have, um, this is a long time ago, I'll say maybe 20 years ago, um, I used to communicate with a guy named John Lear. And he had a whole lot of theories about alien life on the moon. Oh, my brother uh, also communicated with him, John Lear. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and um, that's what got me kind of started on this whole thing was uh, my brother. He had missing time. And he told me the little story about it. And that's what really, I'd always been interested in UFOs. But when he came up with his story, years after it happened, like 20 years, I had no idea that my brother had had missing time. And uh, that's what really got me interested in this. But uh, yeah, I do have three books on it. One is Darker Side of the Moon, They Are Watching Us. Another one is Invader Moon. And the third book is For the Moon is Hollow and Aliens Rule the Sky. Yes. Um so is, do you, in your books, do you propose any theories or evidence to, um, you know, back up this idea? No, I just fake the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, seriously. Yes, I provide evidence. What I do in my books is I give the evidence, give the theory, and let the reader decide for themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't try to absolutely convince them. I like them to research the matter for themselves, but I give them a good deal of evidence that supports the theory. And then it's up to the reader to decide if they really believe it's true or not. But yeah, there seems to be a lot of evidence that the moon may be hollow. I didn't come up with the theory. Two Russian scientists did, uh, members of the Soviet Science Academy, Sherbakov and um, Vasin, and they came up with what they called the spaceship moon theory. That was back in the 70s. And they had reasons and evidence that they had for it and more evidence seems to have come out since then and just recently we have found some evidence that seems to corroborate it even more so um i remember one of the things that they they didn't they intentionally crash a satellite into the moon and it rang like it was a bell well actually it was an apollo mission that they did that with the lander uh or the i think it was the lander and uh they, uh, it was after they finished the mission, and they let it crash back into the moon, and it, the moon did ring like a bell. And it didn't just ring for a little bit. It rang for a long time. One NASA scientist said it was almost as if the moon was hollow. And another one said there was almost a dampening sequence on the moon as if it had internal struts to dampen the vibration. And we have seismographs on the moon now, left by Apollo missions, and they show moonquakes and uh, other landings on the moon. 
And the odd part is, is they don't go, the sound waves or shock waves don't go to the center of the moon. And one NASA scientist, I believe his name was McDonald, said that it was almost as if there was no center to the moon or it had to be made of something that we have no idea what it could be. But there's other evidence for the moon too. I mean, um, small craters versus the great big ones. The small ones are deep. Mm -hmm. The big ones are shallow and they should be even deeper. Uh, there's a lot of strange metal on the surface of the moon, including um, titanium, tungsten, and other materials, much more so than found on the Earth's crust, and the moon is supposed to have come from the Earth, so that shouldn't be. Plus, just within the last couple of weeks, there was an article where they were talking about the fact that the moon may be made of metal. They were exaggerating, of course, but they said that in the large craters, they were finding high levels of titanium. Now, the spaceship moon theory says that if they hollowed out the moon's core, they would have put an inner shell in there of some kind of metal alloy, possibly titanium. So it could be like a death star. In a sense, yeah. And I mean, is the moon completely hollow? No, it would be the core probably. Or it could be huge caverns inside the moon that are hollow and being used. But we have seen too much odd stuff on the moon, so-called transient lunar phenomena. NASA itself commissioned the report. It dated back 500 years. It was compiled by, by NASA, NASA excuse me, scientists. And it showed all sorts of weird things happening on supposedly airless and dead world. These include blue flashes, beacons, sparks, volcanoes, lightning, mists, fogs, objects moving across the surface, even material objects such as bridges at one point then later disappeared. So there is one crater where so much of this is going on that they have nicknamed that crater the Blue Gem, and it is Aristarchus Crater. Now, I didn't nickname it that. Actual astronomers nicknamed it the Blue Gem for everything that was going on there. Wow. Um, so do you think that the moon was possibly placed there by aliens to stabilize the Earth so they could see the planet with life? Um, the stabilization of Earth is highly overrated. Mars doesn't have a moon that stabilizes. It has two, two moons about the size of asteroids, mm -hmm. uh, Phobos and Deimos, and neither one of them is capable of stabilizing Mars, and yet it has been remarkably stable in its, on its axis for millions, perhaps several billion years. So yes, the moon helps stabilize the Earth, but the Earth could survive without it. Secondly, the Earth has tides without the moon. The centrifugal force of the rotation of the Earth causes a tide, and the sun causes tides. So it's not like we had to have the moon to have tides. Also, I think the moon might have been here and have been altered and then put into a new orbit. And I think that took place about 12,000 years ago, about 10,000 BCE. Um, does, the Earth, have, I mean, does the moon have any effect on our atmosphere also? Uh, not really. The problem with the moon is it's one scientist, quite famous, uh, said that it's easier to um, theorize that the moon doesn't exist than that it does exist because it's so weird. We have a number of creation theories for the moon and none of them work well. The moon is not captured. In order for it to have been captured, it was practically impossible that it could come in at any given speed to come into the orbit it's in. Highly unlikely. It's too circular in orbit, which means 
that shouldn't be. It should be elliptical. Almost every object in the solar system has an elliptical orbit. The only planet that has a more circular orbit than the moon is Venus, which also is a strange place too. Um, the moon coming from the earth, well, if you go with the final theory that we're with now, where Thea, a protoplanet, struck earth and the moon came from the earth, there are problems with that too. Because if that's so, we should find the isotopic signature for Thea in rocks on the moon, along with uh, the isotopic signature from rocks from the Earth's mantle. You don't smack two planets together, tear them apart, and have them reform, and the moon come out of it without some of the material coming from the planet Thea. As far as we know, as yet, we haven't found anything to support that. Um, do you think think that maybe during the early Apollo missions they found something on the moon and then that's why they had stopped the moon missions because of maybe they found something or were actually maybe even asked like hey don't come here I don't think we were asked I, th I think we were told uh, there's a lot of stories about the Apollo 11 mission being followed by an alien spacecraft uh, it's even Recordings of it still exist, where one astronaut says there's something seems to be following us at a distance. NASA says, uh, it might be your booster trailing behind you. And they said, no, we see that quite clearly. This is something else. It's pacing us. So we have that actual recording. We have a recording of a commander who was a female of the space shuttle. I actually watched it live on television when it happened. She's floating in the command module, and she's, or the, um, I don't know what you call it, the cockpit. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's floating there, and she's talking, and you hear her, and she says, oh, here's that alien spacecraft again. And then NASA goes, repeat, please. And she goes, the alien spacecraft, it's there again. Then abruptly, the sound stops immediately. She's still floating there. Her mouth is still moving, but you're not hearing a thing. They switched her to an encrypted channel. Uh, there's stories that um, the first astronauts on the moon did see several large UFOs perched on the top of a ridge overlooking their, where they were. And the astronauts got the distinct impression they were not wanted. Hmm. So what about with now, like they're getting ready to go back to the moon? Um, do you think they may have cut a deal or we think we're just going back there as unwelcome guests? Well, first we have to go back there, don't we? I keep hearing that we're going to go back there and it keeps changing. Under Bush, we were supposed to go back to the moon. Never did. Uh, now we're supposed to go back, but it's getting delayed repeatedly. Other uh, countries are putting things in orbit around the moon. China landed a small rover on the moon. That's been it. Now, we're talking a half a century. We had the technology in 1969 to land a man on the moon. And certainly our technology has progressed since then. Why haven't we been back? And that's the big question. Why? And I think it's because we were warned off. Yeah, I, I find that unusual too. Like why we haven't gone to the moon, like why we haven't gone out to different, you know, things that we can reach, like asteroids and stuff like that, just to get metals and things like that. I mean, well, there's something, make, uh, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. It just makes sense to, to start harvesting resources from, you know, those things that are around the earth that we can access, but we haven't. Absolutely. But we have the technology to do it. Yes, we do. We've had it for, since 1969. <laughs> so why haven't we been back? I mean, that is the big question. Also, we do have evidence the moon may not have always been there 
historical evidence. And that's another, see, when I write my books, I like to give evidence from different sources. One is the Spaceship Moon Theory by Sherbakov and Vasin. And uh, another is the uh, NASA reports of the um, transient lunar phenomena. And my third source is actual recorded, historically recorded uh, statements about a time before there was a moon or when there was no moon. The Greeks talked about the fact that before they inhabited the area, classical Greece, that there was another race that lived in Greece before they basically pushed them out. They called this race the Proselenes because they existed in a time before there was a moon. And proselene literally means before moon. Uh, Rome talks about a time before the uh, moon existed. In the New World, in Central and South America, a lot of native tribes would preface legends, so-called legends, uh, with the statement, back before there was a moon. Also, historically speaking, we have uh, very little record of drawings or maps of the moon's surface that date back more than five, 600 years. The oldest known drawing of the moon that we have is one cave painting dating back about 12,000 years. It shows what look like stars and a crescent, and they're assuming the crescent is the moon. That's it. Now, the moon is eminently visible in the night sky. Anyone could sit outside the door of their house, no matter what time period in history, and trace the dark maria on the, those dark spots on the moon's surface and certain other features, at least. Mm -hmm. They didn't. They didn't. Nothing before 12,000 years ago. And this seems to be when something happened. We have evidence of massive disruption, a sudden end of the ice age, a sudden raising of the uh, water levels of the seas, a crown fire going across North America, the extinction of all the North American giant mammals at that exact time, the uh, collapse of an ancient civilization, probably one that had uh, megalithic structures all around the world, just disappeared overnight. The, uh, and then we have the um, evidence that some historical things that did survive were badly damaged, like the ruins at Punapunku mm -hmm. in South America. So, there does seem to be some historical evidence for this as well. Is it absolute? Is it a smoking gun? No, but when you add it all up, all these different sources, it's intriguing. Do you think there was a human civilization before that got wiped out and then a new human civilization came into existence? Um, yes, actually, I do, and I have a book on that too called Ancient Alien Empire, Megalithia. The Anunnaki of the, um, uh, of the ancient Sumerian culture, they had cuneiform writing on tablets of clay. These have been um, translated by Sitchin, and he re it refers to an alien race or gods that came to earth and created humans to do all the dirty work, mostly mining and labor because they were unsuited for it. If you're alien, you probably weren't too suited for Earth's atmosphere environment. These so-called Anunnaki lived in palaces, and the priesthood of the time literally served them hand and foot, food, water, bathing them, and everything. To this day, we have temples to the gods, various gods, and we still have the priesthoods, but the temples are no longer occupied, apparently. All right. Um Do you think it's possible that humans may have evolved? Some of them left the planet, the ones that stayed behind, wiped themselves out, and then the old humans that went out into space came back? 
I think it's more likely that we were tampered with as a species. Again, the Sumerian uh, cuneiform writings speak of the gods doing something to us, changing us so that we could, were better suited to labor for them, which means that there would have been ape-like Homo erectus creatures on our planet, as our history actually shows, but that they tampered with us and made a more intelligent species. They also refer to the fact that we rebelled against them at one point. By the way, the Indian Vedic texts also speak of the same thing. Right. They speak of alien gods who controlled the earth and that there was a human rebellion against them during a great war that took place in space mm -hmm. with over 400 different species and even took place on the moon. Yeah, I, I've read some of that with the Vedic texts and, um, and also the work of uh, Stitchin. Um, <clears throat> If, the, if that was the case, though, what, 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 what makes me think about, you know, like the, that story is, though, is why would they have just left us? Why wouldn't they have just wiped us out when they were finished? Well, think about it. They would have been here in great numbers. They apparently came and went over long periods of time due to the relativity of traveling near the speed of light. Maybe that's why they had megalithic structures, these huge carved stone things like the Baalbek platform, the uh, Temple Mount platform in Jerusalem. These things are meant to last because they take off on their ships and centuries would pass on Earth. And they wanted the structures to still be there when they got back. So they commanded humans to make them out of huge masses of stone. We still don't know how they did some of these things. But they were meant to last, and that's why they build with stone, because it was long-lasting even to today, thousands of years later. Secondly, they were supposedly in the middle of a battle for their own lives and control, if you go by the Vedic texts. And Krishna, I believe it was, even had to go to the moon to fight a battle in, with his Vamana, spaceships, whatever, flying mm -hmm. craft on the moon. At the same time, humans supposedly rebelled. And the, apparently there were nuclear blasts on Earth. There's strong evidence of there having been a nuclear war around that time. We have um, vitrified stone, which has been turned to glass in Scotland in a fort. Yeah. Not the surrounding countryside, just the fort. The same is true in Germany and other places as well. We have high radioactive backgrounds in areas of India. Uh, so again, we have all this tantalizing evidence that something big happened around 12,000 years ago. If, if we were to be wiped out now, would there be anything left of our current civilization in, say, 10,000 years, or there'll be, like, no trace of us? Almost nothing. Our concrete that we build with is not as good, believe it or not, as what the Romans used. Their temples and structures and aqueducts have lasted. Ours wouldn't last 10,000 years. They'd be dust. Our skyscrapers would be dust. Our cars would have completely corroded away. There would be almost no surface evidence of us whatsoever. The fact that there is evidence from that long ago on Earth uh, of some megalithic structures dating back um, 10,000 years, 11,000 years, uh, is incredible. But then again, they were using massive slabs of stone. And that takes more than thousands. That takes sometimes a million or more years to completely de you know, disintegrate. That's why I asked that question, because it, it, it fills a hole in it. a lot of the theories of skeptics. You know, skeptics go, oh, well, there would be evidence, but... The truth is, there would be no evidence. If we were to be wiped out now, 10,000 years from now, there would be no trace of us. 
Well, there might so, be buried evidence, you know, yeah. like layers of rock. And we have found some interesting stuff there, too, which is another platform of which I base my evidence on, another leg, if you will, to support the table of it. Uh, we have found numerous oop art items uh, buried where they shouldn't be buried and in a time zone when they shouldn't have been buried. Over 12,000 nano screws along a, a Ural River in Russia uh, buried up to 30 feet deep. No accounting, but made of titanium and tungsten. Uh, nanoscrews that we can barely make I, now. Yeah, I saw that one recently. Yeah, and also there are, we have found embedded in lumps of coal, big lumps of coal, ladles, kettles, handbills, odd structures. The handbell had the engravings of some kind of what looked like gods on it, but we don't know what those gods were. They're nothing like we know in our historical records. So where did that come from? We have found footprints, uh, embedded and people said oh well that's just a dinosaur that looks like a human footprint one of the footprints is a moccasin or a sandal and even has the stitching of the shoe embedded in it quite clearly so how did this come about so it looks like sub stuff was happening a long time ago we don't know about i think we have racial amnesia all right so there's a lot of evidence then that that's currently coming up that doesn't necessarily jive maybe with the Darwin theory that most people seem to accept. Would, would that be true? Uh, no. Or that the Darwin theory has a missing part to it where they kind of just leave out the genetic modification from going from an early hominid to an actual human? Well, first of all, we haven't even found all of the different hominids that might have existed. We're still finding them as recently as a couple of years ago. We don't think there was a missing link per se. We think there were a lot of different branches of humanity, some that existed at the same time, like the Neanderthal and um, Cro-Magnon. And the Hobbit people that they found. Yes, exactly. And there was another race, the so-called Boskop people, in Africa, they had huge heads. Their brain sizes were up to a third larger than ours, and they said their minds must have been so powerful as to perceive the world in a different way. And at first they thought it was just a mutation or uh, elongated skull. They have since found that no, that was an actual distinct species of humans, the Boskop, B-O-S-K-O-P. And uh, interesting to look up. And they think that they might not have survived because they might have been too advanced mentally for the time they were born into. They simply couldn't cope with the reality that existed around them, which is also interesting. And uh, I mean, this sort of thing goes on and on. There's also the matter of being RH negative blood type. We can't account for it. There is a lot of people, especially on the internet, always on the internet, that think <laughs> that people with <laughs> RH negative blood types are actually the ones that the Anunnaki changed to serve them, that we were the servant species to the Anunnaki. Some other things that makes RH negative people the blood royal, which I think is pushing it to the extreme. But we can't account for RH negative people. It shouldn't exist. It should have been bred out of the population a long time ago because it's lethal. It's only with modern medicine that we can ensure the mother and child survive. In the older days, more often than not, they died, both the mother and or the child. Because if you have a negative child or a positive mother or vice versa, that was the end of it. And by the way, do you know what RH negative means? No. RH refers to the rhesus monkey. 
And Rh negative or positive means whether or not you have the protein, that a uh, certain protein, uh, genetic protein that the rhesus monkey has. If you're Rh negative, you don't have the rhesus monkey protein. If you're positive, you do. And some 85 to 86% of the population of the earth does have it, but that other 15 to 16% does not. Could that mean that we came from two separate races or those two separate races of humans? Or what it means is that some of us were tinkered with, perhaps by the Anunnaki of the Sumerian legends, that we were altered genetically. Mm -hmm. And then the other ones we, were not? I say, uh, I say we because I'm already negative. Right. <laughs> but uh, I think, no, I think the other ones probably weren't. And the ones that are RH negative are descendants of the ones that were tinkered with, if you will. By the way, another interesting fact, almost every president that we have records for, the vast majority, uh, darn close to 100%, not quite, like I, I can't remember the exact figure, it was like 85, 87% were, are RH negative. Most of the royal family in Great Britain is RH negative. Many of the royal families throughout Europe were RH negative. There's, that's where I think some people get the idea of royal blood. They're making connotations there that I don't think apply. Wow. You just blew my mind completely with that one. Totally. Yeah, I was hoping to. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting to have my mind blown that much today. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good, it's working. <laughs> it is totally working. Uh, you know, because I, I, I do believe that we don't even know the half of it with what, what happened here as far as our history goes and our origins, you know. No, and I don't think so. I, I mean, there might be some I – mean, and I agree with you. There's clues, you know. There's clues in the Sumerian texts. You know, I, I think there's some clues in the, you know, the, the Native American um, mythologies. And, you know, there's clues in, like, different parts, you know, little pieces of it. But what we, as far as putting it all together and trying to come up, like the Vedic taxes, like putting it all together into one coherent linear story we're and not, that's what I try to do. That's, we're not that's, there yet. That's what I try to do. No, we're not there yet. But, uh, I mean, the West, we have such a bias against other countries' histories. The Indians uh, of India don't refer to the Vedic texts as legends. They refer to them as their history. Yes. For the in Indians, it is their history. We call them legends and myths, but that's a Western bias. Mm -hmm. So a, a lot of our history is also based on Western bias. We're the superior Western culture. We're this, we're that. Everyone else is just a bunch of barbarians with myths and legends and we have had a superior attitude that way for too long it's time we take everything at more face value and investigate it on an equal basis rather than instantly disregard it hmm. so i i had interviewed a guy a native um, oh, he was um from vancouver indian and we were talking about bigfoot of course and, you know, he had his origin story for Bigfoot. But when he told me that story, the first thing that popped into my mind is maybe Bigfoots are the completely unaltered version of what we once were. Like maybe they're the race that the, the aliens 
didn't get a chance to genetically modify. Absolutely. Or it could be another race of human beings like uh, Neanderthal. Uh, you know, we always say Bigfoot. It really all started much further back in time than that with the Yeti. Right. the abominable snowman of the Himalayan mountains. They were often seen. So this is nothing new. And it goes back much farther than just the 1960s and 70s. This is long-term stuff. Hmm. By the way, so, that's if any of this is real. I mean, if this right. is all just a simulation, then all bets are off. <laughs> right. And that makes me think, too, you know, like we were talking earlier before the show about, you know, quantum stuff. And sometimes I wonder, you know, about the holographic universe type of theory where everything is actually information rather than matter. Well, Max Tegmark, um, a noted scientist, thinks we are in, he's, he's, it's not that the universe is based on mathematics he says the universe is mathematics and one of the standard principles of the universe is information cannot be created or destroyed you cannot uh, destroy information it has to exist even in a black hole so um how do we account for that by the way uh another scientist nick bostrom says there's about a 35 he's a physicist i believe or maybe not, I can't remember, but he's, he is a scientist, and he did say that uh, there's about a 33 to 35% probability we're living in a matrix. And another scientist discovered block linear code in, the th in string theory. He came across it, the mathematics for block linear self-correcting code. This is not similar to, it is the exact same code that Google, Yahoo, and other search engines use to mm -hmm. correct errors in data trans, uh, transmissions. Right. And this brings me to the topic of one of your books, The Mandela Effect. What would you like um, to know about that? Well, <laughs> um, I, I don't know. If, like, I don't know how many of my listeners are. First, to give my listeners an idea of what the Mandela effect is. Okay. Or some um, of them the, may not. I mean. Right. Uh, the Mandela effect is uh, originally was conceived of uh, the term by, I believe her name was um, Fiona Broom. I think that was her name. And it was because she had a blog site and people were talking about having different memories. And one of the memories that uh, really came to the surface and that thousands of people seem to remember the wrong way was the death of Nelson Mandela. Many people believed and remembered, this is important, remembered that he died in prison in the 80s or 90s, early 90s, and that he never became president of Africa. Others remember him going on to have a long life and being president of South Africa. I remember it both ways, to be honest with you. Uh, and we have now... Psychologists say, okay, yes, these are false memories, uh, or they think it, they are. The only things even psychiatrists and psychologists will admit to is that they don't understand why so many people uh, have the same false memory. Let me give you a quick example, uh, a little test for you. This one I usually use. Okay. What, color is what color is chartreuse? I don't know. Don't, don't look it up. <laughs> Just guess. <laughs> uh, blue. <laughs> Well, you're different. Okay. Chartreuse <laughs> is a lime green. The majority of people remember it as being reddish, maroonish, or reddish purple. 
but it's not. It's lime green, but they distinctly remember it being that other color. Now, they don't normally remember, now, you guessed, but if you remembered, they don't remember blue. They don't remember yellow. They don't remember orange. They don't remember green. They either remember, uh, remember it as it should be, lime green, mm -hmm. or as uh, a reddish purple or maroonish color. That's one example. Kit Kat, does it have a hyphen between it? Candy bar, or doesn't it? Many people remember it with a hyphen between it. Yeah, I it remember the hyphen. Yeah, well, it doesn't have it, and Kit Kat says it never did. This goes on and on. Uh, Ford has a little curly cue on the crosshatch of the F in Ford. Mm -hmm. They insist it was always that way since they first founded Ford back in the early 1900s. Yet, we have a physical medallion from a World's Fair that shows it with the curly cue on it, and another medallion from the same fair, physical evidence, that doesn't have it. It's both ways. We have reports in the archives under the Freedom of Information Act with the CIA, no less, that have two completely different versions of historical events that took place in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Two to three different versions of the same event, completely different outcomes. No one can account for it. This goes on and on. There are islands that have disappeared from the face of the earth. Many, many maps and globes, uh, and I found one of them myself in films and TV shows. When they're, you know, they show a globe or a map, they show a landmass to the west of Australia, just off mm -hmm. its coast. doesn't exist. Other, other globes show landmasses just to the southern tip of South America, to the west of it. doesn't exist. Others show landmasses in the middle of the Pacific, quite large ones. I'd call them tiny continents. They don't exist. We have uh, other islands that have disappeared. Lots of them, including so-called Atlantis, if you want to believe that one. But there are others as well. And they're, on, they're recorded by different ships passing. The most recent occurred in the South Pacific just a couple years ago. And it was Sandy, I think it was Sandy Hook Island or Sandy Island. And um, several different captains in different times with their ships, including I think Captain Cook, passed by and recorded it. And the Dutch did, the English did, I believe a French ship did as well. And uh, they recorded quite a bit about it. Now it no longer exists. And it never could have because on our planet, the ocean's about 4,000 feet deep right there. It's not like it just went beneath the waves a little bit, eroded down or something. So we don't know what happened to it. Some say, well, it must have been a, an island of pumice stones just floating on the surface. Highly unlikely that it would last several centuries, and especially in one spot, the same spot. Oh, and by the way, Sandy Island appears on a global satellite map of the Earth, photographic, not drawn, and it's, it's blacked out. It's there, but it's blacked out. And uh, Google only does that if it's the government installation or some government has requested that they do so. Yeah, these are a lot of <clears throat> unexplainable things. Um, I can think of maybe like, like you know, obviously there's the holographic theory of information that's being changed, which causes these things to happen. Or maybe another possibility is that somehow we're crossing over between maybe two different dimensions, one where these things exist and one where they don't, um, through consciousness, like a mass conscious shift, or even maybe a shift in timelines well it's interesting because what we've stopped uh, and, and don't really think about is like with these islands there are people living on them if you had a landmass that large 
just to the west of Australia on several different globes. And by the way, I discovered images of it myself. Check the fourth season of I Dream of Genie. There's a guy with a globe stuck on his head. On the globe is clearly a landmass to the west of Australia that doesn't exist. There's also a very large island showing mountains, harbors, and a river just to the southern tip of South America to the west of it that doesn't exist. Other movies, um, Days and Confused, show the same thing. Uh, uh, Friends, I believe mm-hmm. it was the second season, the episode that was referred to as Bracelet Buddies, globe in the background, shows an island off the west of Australia. Doesn't exist. Now, the thing is, we could be switching timelines. Or someone could be traveling the past and altering our past, and therefore we establish a new timeline without that in it. Or it could be that we are a matrix, a simulation, and someone is playing with the matrix. Which one do you think is the most likely hypothesis? Um, I'm inclined towards the timeline shifting because of quantum computers. One of the two founders of D-Wave Quantum Computers in Canada He's on the internet. He did a seminar. You can watch it for yourself and listen to it. And he says that quantum computers, and by the way, he's not the only one, um, actually access quantum computers in parallel timelines, and that's why they can process so quickly. Now, here's the thing. If that's true, what are the side effects of that? And we didn't start it till 2010 or so is about when we first began to experiment with the very most primitive quantum computers. And it was in about 2013 that... uh, they came up with the idea of the Mandela effect. Is there a connection? Maybe. It may be that one of the side effects of um, interacting with other timelines is that you merge and separate and twist timelines as a result. We didn't know what the, um, the problems were with an atomic bomb, the side effects. when We blew up the first ones. We found out in a hurry. Maybe the same is true of quantum computers. Maybe. Um. <clears throat> How about HARP? you think HARP could have had an effect on it? I don't think HARP has any effect with regard to that. I think it's having other effects. Weather and control? I think weather control is definitely one of them. <clears throat> and uh, there may be other things that we're not simply aware of. We're not the only ones with a HARP. Europe has built one, and so is the Sov- oh, Soviet Union. Sorry, Russia. And they say it's to experiment and learn more about the ionizing layer of the Earth's atmosphere. Well, how big an array do you need to do that? And how many countries need to do the same thing? There's some reason why they have HARP, and I don't think it's the one the government tells us it is. No, it's definitely not. Um, so one of the things that we were also talking about was like the, um, the God particle. And um, like, what, you, what, what do you think... Um, created, like, well, why do we perceive things as solid reality when we know that it's not? Well, first of all, we consider solid reality as anything, but it's 99.9999999, I think I dropped one nine there, percent vacuum. That means that everything around us that appears solid isn't. It's only because of the nuclear force of the atoms that repels, that causes us not to be able to put our hand through a desk. If you ever wondered if a ghost could walk through another ghost, the answer is no, apparently, because we can't, and we are ghosts. Also, there's strong evidence from um, quantum physics that we are not actually reality as we see it as all, that we are the unfolding of probability waves. 
Now, what this means is, and we were discussing this earlier, you and I, mm-hmm. uh, and, or I should say you and me in that case. Uh, no, you and I. And uh, we were talking, <laughs> I always get that one screwed up. But uh, we were discussing the idea that you exist here and now because it's the highest probability. But it doesn't preclude the possibility that you might suddenly exist somewhere else instead, including out in the middle of space where you'd promptly die. It is just the most likely scenario that you are here and doing what you're doing. The probability is highest for that. It's a very, very small probability that you might suddenly pop out somewhere else, but it's not impossible. It does exist as a probability. So if we are just probability waves, then nothing around us is really solid at all. We're moving through a sea of probability waves, and when we focus on them, they collapse into what we think of as reality from instant to instant. And by the way, there is the smallest instant of time. It's referred to as the jiffy. And there's also a smallest unit of measurement called the Planck. Nothing can be smaller than the Planck. Mm -hmm. And with regard to the simulation theory, it postulates that if it's true, there should be pixelation on the smallest level of the universe. And we have it with time units and distance units. So maybe it is all the simulation. Maybe we're all just functioning inside of a computer, so we're just probability waves playing out. Um, I was recently reading a book called Samadhi, and in the book, it describes the universe as a huge void with nothing in it, and then suddenly one single particle appears. And that's all that exists, is this massive void in this one particle. But because this one particle exists, it has to take on every form imaginable. And it does it all at one time. Like, there's no such thing as It just happens. Like, in a big picture, and we, our view of time is just because we're, we're slower than what's actually happening because everything's actually happening at one time. Well, Fermi, I believe it was, I think it was Fermi, came up with the idea that there's only one electron in the entire universe. Yes. And that it, it exists in all different times at once simultaneously. So we see a flow of electrons in a wire and call it electricity, a current. It's really the same electron in different states and times, all appearing to manifest at once, which looks like a flow of electrons to us, but actually is just the one electron and just transposed to a different time and location. So it's possible. That is possible. By the way, the idea that the universe came to existence as one particle is pretty much the Big Bang Theory. We know quantum fluctuations exist, that virtual particles are created and destroyed all the time. They think the universe might have been such a thing, a nothingness, and then suddenly there was a quantum fluctuation and a particle appeared. And so, yeah, that idea is not probably far off. Yeah, it definitely resonated with me, like when I look at read that read that theory, and then I look at all the things that are unexplained. It it, it makes sense, and what also makes sense to me with that theory is the um, the effect that our consciousness has on matter. Um, you know, like the with with you know, like how particles will act differently if they're observed and when they're not observed. Right, the dual nature of particles, wave and particle. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, that's, that's a given. That's probably the most tested theory in quantum physics of all. We know that's the way it is. So what does it mean? 
It means that when we observe something, it collapses into a particle or real state. And when we're not observing it, it is a probability wave fanning out. If you could picture putting a message in a bottle, say on the beach in Australia, and you throw it in the ocean, under normal circumstances in our classical reality, it should have to float for years until eventually it bounces up on a shore somewhere and someone picks up and says, oh, here it is. But with du dual nature of particle wave systems, you throw that bottle in the ocean and it becomes a wave. It's no longer a particle, a solid object. And it fans out as a wave and wherever it first hits the shore, wherever that is, Japan, Asia, North America, South America, then it suddenly becomes a particle again. And the odd part is, is it happens when we observe it but it doesn't happen when we don't observe it. It's just a probability wave. It's weird. It's like we're just in this like maybe some kind of bubble of consciousness too. Like that's one of the other theories that I think about with consciousness anyways, is maybe everything is just consciousness, which again is information, I would think. You know, I mean, it's hard to define what consciousness is. I mean, I guess the best thing I could put it to would be information. Um, I don't know. It, it just blows my mind, you know? Like I said, it's, this is the stuff that really keeps me up at night. <laughs> well, there's one theory that the human brain is the particle state of the human body, and the mind is the wave state, that it is a quantum wave created by the physical brain. Another one is, is that the consciousness, if you go with the holographic universe, is really part and parcel of the whole system. It's only manifesting itself in us right now for a certain length of time, and then goes back to the cosmic consciousness again. Carl Jung came up with this idea with his um, collective subconscious and archetypal characters, that when we dream, we all have similar um, symbols in our dreams, no matter who we are or where, where we are on the planet, and that these are drawn from a collective subconscious or possibly you might refer to it as an unconscious God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I had actually done a couple of interviews. I did one with a guy named Rad Al on dreams. And then I have a friend of mine who wrote a book on dreams. Also, he's a history professor at uh, Drexel and we, we, we covered that quite a bit. And that, that's what, you know, dreams are like, that's another weird thing because they seem real when we're having them, but that's not where my, what I think is my physical body is. Well, actually there's some scientists right now that think that um, sporadic nerve flare ups, neurons in the brain uh, don't create dreams at all, but that the minute we wake up, we perceive them because they were ran so random that we collect them and create a dream upon awakening. But I don't buy that because I've, been woken up by nightmares i was sound asleep had a bad dream and woke up because of the bad dream so mm -hmm. i was dreaming while i was unconscious otherwise if i if you only have remembered as a dream after you've woken up and before it wasn't then that, why is it we wake up from nightmares sometimes we were dreaming yeah we definitely dream yeah so i i don't buy what some of those scientists are saying i don't believe it's just an after the fact thing where oh yeah i woke up and i had all these weird thoughts and you your mind automatically tries to make sense of it by saying, oh, I dreamt this dream. I don't think so. I think dreams are real. Whether they're solid is another matter. Are they other parallel universes? I don't know. Yeah. Or sometimes, like, I wonder, like, maybe we have it backwards, you know? Maybe when I'm awake, I'm actually dreaming, and when I'm dreaming, I'm actually awake. 
Well, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a poem once, and part of the, a couple of lines of it said, is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things I want to other when uh, you've written so many books, and, um, and I know one of them is a guide to writing and publishing science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Yeah. What, what what inspires you as an author to to write on these type of subjects and like how do you do it? Well, first of all, I've always been extremely curious ever since I was about six or seven years old. At the age of six, I argued with my father about whether UFOs are real or not. So I investigate things. I research them. I want to know. If anyone asks me what drives you, Rob, it's I want to know. And so I start researching it and different subjects like the Mothman. And eventually I come up with all this evidence and I think, you know, I have to share this. I try to get, you know, get it in book form and get it out there and see what other people think. And again, I always write my books with the idea that here's the evidence I've found. It's up to you to decide if it's enough to make you believe it or not. I don't like the word believe at all. Uh, belief is faith in something which cannot be proven. I like to prove things. Right. Um, but then again, what is proof? Is proof a photograph? You know what I mean? Like, like it's even hard to define what proof is, I think. Well, it's like saying, can you prove the sun will come up tomorrow? No, you can't. But if someone's pointing a gun at your head and says, your answer being correct depends on whether you live or die, and they cock the gun, Mm -hmm. They start to squeeze the trigger and they say to you, will the sun rise tomorrow? What's your answer going to be? Yes. Okay. So for all practical purposes, you're accepting the idea that the sun will rise tomorrow as a proof that it will actually happen. And that's all we can go by. Everything is really a theory and we can find evidence to support it or not support it. Uh, but if you find a preponderance of evidence to support something, then you have to go with that. It's like the flat earth theory. You can believe the earth is flat all you want to, but the overwhelming and vast preponderance of evidence shows that it is not flat. So you can choose to believe it is, but where's your evidence to support it? I can give you evidence to back my idea. I can actually um, prove the earth is round simply by a simple geometry measurement trick that I learned in high school. Mm -hmm. And, and, and um, a Greek philosopher back 3,500 years ago did the same thing. So it's not anything new. So, yes, there's no absolutes in this universe. I think I've come to that conclusion. But if I have a refrigerator standing in front of me and someone says, that refrigerator is not there, and I say, yes, it is, and they say, prove it, I'll say, okay, if it's not there, then walk through it. Mm -hmm. Chances are they won't be able to. So that, to me, is acceptable proof. Is it the ultimate proof? No but I don't think there is such a thing as ultimate proof. And then there's like the, the, the total reverse of that, you know? Like one of my reasons I did my show, Everything Imaginable, is because on one level, too, I think that if we're able to imagine it, then it has to be, it, it, more, more than likely, it's possible somewhere, you know? Oh, absolutely. In and in an form. infinite, yeah, and in an infinite universe, um, you're going to have parallel realities. 
uh, string theory calls for it. The Big Bang inflation theory calls for parallel universes. Uh, if the universe is infinite, there have to be um, realities that are almost like ours and some that are identical. Because if the universe goes on forever, we only have so many types of particles. They're like Lego blocks. You can put them together a countless number of ways, but not an infinite number. Sooner or later, they repeat. And close variations of the original repeat. Very close. So there must be other Earths with other yous living other lives. If the universe is infinite, given the laws of nature, it has to be. If the inflation theory of the uh, Big Bang theory is correct, it has to be. If the string theory is correct, it has to be. It is far more likely that there are all sorts of, there must be an infinite subset of universes with you in it. Yeah. Uh, somewhere you're a billionaire, somewhere you're a priest, somewhere you're a panhandler, but every variation on a theme of you must exist if in an infinite universe. So if the universe is infinite, yes, every possibility that's possible must sooner or later be realized. I think I'm going to use that for the title of this show, <laughs> this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Which part of that very long sentence are you referring to? I'm using that whole sentence. <laughs> <laughs> the world's longest title. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I once wrote a, a, a poem, and I, I, I Googled like the, the, the longest um, t name of a bird. It was like, you know, it was really long bird name. And the poem was Tweet. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the name for the longest village, uh, the longest name for a village in the world? That's a Welsh village. Mm -hmm. And I can't begin to pronounce the name, but it's like three lines long. And it means something to the effect the village that is near the cave of uh, the red cave by the woods and blah, 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 blah. But I, I couldn't begin. Could you imagine having to address your return mail with that name on it? That's like even like somebody, um, like, you know, I, I like reading, like, Buddhist and Hindu text, and, and some of the names <laughs> oh. take up, like, two or three lines. <laughs> even, even, the, uh, even the names of the scientists that I refer to in my books, I haven't, I'm terrible with pronouncing names. And I, when I'm on air, I just hate to try to raise some of these scientists' names because I'm so afraid I'll completely butcher it. Me too. So I'm running out of time. And I feel like we've only skimmed the surface. Um, before I let you go, I want you to tell my listeners where they can find your books and, you know, w what you have going on. Sure. You can find all my books on Amazon Kindle. They're in Kindle version or print version there. They're in other ebook formats at Smashwords and Barnes & Noble and other places. Uh, or you can go to Permuted Press, Simon & Schuster, to find my uh, Invader Moon book or my science fiction series, The Apocrypha Trilogy. So, uh, or just Google my name on the, uh, under Google and all this stuff comes up. And what is that name? Oh, Rob Shelsky. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Shelsky. <laughs> it's been a long day. <laughs> this, this was the most mind-blowing episode I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it's a funny one, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I think my listeners are going to listen to this and be like, after this, there'll be 
walk around just questioning absolutely everything. <laughs> Either that or they'll never listen to your show again. One of the two. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Good luck with that. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, so I definitely want to have you come back again so we can go into more detail on some of these topics because I know we only skimmed the surface of a lot of them. Sure. I'd be glad to anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on my show. And um, what time is it where you're at? What time is it? Uh, I'm at two o'clock. Where are you? I am one o'clock. I'm in Alabama. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, I do appreciate being on your show, Gary. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. And um, if you want, send me some links to stuff to post in the notes for the podcast. And I'll put them in there so people can find you. Great. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you and have a great day. And uh, I'm going to stay in touch so I can schedule you for another time, okay? We'll oh, that'd be some fine. More things. And you have a good afternoon. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle. Which I would be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com. And Patreon is patreon.com forward slash everything imaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening and see you next week. And oh yes, you can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.